You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. My name is Josh Garwood. My wife and I serve in the Next Gen building with four and five-year-olds. This morning, we will be reading out of Genesis 40, verses 1 through 23. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you can find a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Starting in verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was very angry with his two officers, the cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued in some time in custody. One night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with them in the custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we've had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not dreams and interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, blossoms shot forth and clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed into them Pharaoh's cups. And then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. Three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do the kindness to me to mention to me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews And here also, I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I have also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked foods for the Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered, this is its interpretation. Three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was the Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Josh. Um, Yeah, what do we do when suffering gets worse? I think is the huge question at the heart of this passage. My wife and I had an impromptu uh, dinner this week with some new friends of ours. We sat down with them, uh, with our crazy kids at the restaurant, 
And uh, we just said, how's life for you guys? And they kind of looked at each other and they said, do y'all want, uh, do y'all want the fake story or the real story? And I said, well, hopefully the, the real story. Uh, and they said, okay, well, uh, in the last week, uh, we have learned that uh, the child in my womb is probably not gonna make it. Uh, somebody especially close to us called us last night and said their marriage is nearly at the end. And this past weekend, one of our grandparents died unexpectedly and we just got back in town from the funeral. So how's your week going? It's, uh, situations like that that made me thankful for the providence of teaching through Joseph's story. Because if we know this guy's life, it just goes from bad to worse. That's where we are. Uh, My friends are in the throes of suffering. Joseph is in the throes of suffering. So many of you are presently in the throes of suffering, which answering suffering, how we answer, how we come about and approach suffering is actually one of the most significant philosophical questions in history. It's how entire worldviews and religions have sought to approach life and meaning. And so I think for us today, we would do well to spend some time living in that question. What do we do when things get worse? And as a recap for for Joseph's life, I mean, my goodness, if you guys remember just quickly, He's abandoned, he's abused, and he's trafficked by his brothers. He's sent away from everything that he ever knew to finally gain favor in Potiphar's house, only to be falsely accused of sexual sin and thrown into prison, only to gain crazy favor in prison, which he has. And now in this story read for us, just a second ago, to be forgotten in prison as well. And so I hope in explaining this text a little bit more, we can see what God might show us about how, through Joseph's life, about what we do when the suffering gets worse. So let's walk through the story. Okay, verse one. And sometime after this, the cupbearer, the king of Egypt, and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Uh, We don't know what they did, but we know it was serious and we know that it was seriously done to the king of Egypt. That's a really big deal. The level of an offense always rises in proportion to who you commit it against, by the way. An example of this would be if you trespassed on my yard, we would let our non-ferocious dog out and she would run off and not attack you. Uh, And then I might throw a Nerf gun at you, but if you uh, jumped... Um, like 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the White House, if you just jump the fence to trespass there, that would be my friends a felony and you would be locked up. The level of an offense always rises in proportion to who is offended and they have offended the king of Egypt. This is a big deal. Let's keep reading verse two. And so Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer, the chief baker, And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. And this continued for some time in custody. Okay, Uh, the cupbearer and the baker, what did they do? The cupbearer, so they're both officers uh, to Pharaoh. 
Um, the cupbearer is going to be the one that pours his wine and makes sure that there's no poison. The baker is going to be the one that bakes food and makes sure that it's done to his liking and that it's all edible and healthy. And again, to his full enjoyment, these are big deal positions. They have unique access to Pharaoh. They are officers in the royal court. Again, we are not sure the offense, but we know it's grievous enough that the king decided to send them to prison where they meet the most favored Joe, Joseph, who we learned last week is basically running the prison. Uh, he is the keeper of the, it says in uh, the last chapter that the keeper of the, of the prison paid no attention uh, because the Lord was with him. That's the theme of chapter 39. The Lord is with him, the Lord is with him. Imagine running a prison and, uh, the, and, and, and delegating basically so much authority to a guy that you don't even pay attention to him. That sounds like the highest level of trust because it is. And so this is where the cupbearer and the baker meet favor Joseph, where everywhere he goes, it is so obvious that God is with him. Now let's get into the crux of the story. Verse five. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream. And each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we've had dreams. There's no one to interpret them. And then Joseph said to them, well, don't all interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Okay, let's understand dreams in a ancient Near Eastern context. They were often viewed as a medium of divine revelation. This is the ultimate thing that the divine gods would communicate to people through dreams. And so they were significant as they are today. And what you would do in those times is you would go and find a magician or you would find a wise man and you would go, what would this mean? And two officers of the royal court would have access to who presumably in Egypt were the best and brightest in that interpretation. They don't have access to those people. They're in prison. But Joe finds them and he is, sees that they're deeply troubled and he says to them, okay, well, I can help because I believe all interpretations belong to God. And when he says God, he means his God. And so he's stepping into risk by doing this because he's associating the interpretation of these men in high power to what God, his God, the God of the universe can actually communicate through him. And so Joseph, a foreigner who the Lord is with, says all dreams are in the domain of God and I can help. He puts himself out there. Verse nine, let's get into the interpretation itself. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph, said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossom shot forth, the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand 
as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Okay, that goes really well and pretty self-explanatory. He sees a grapevine. He sees himself taking the grapes, putting the grapes in Pharaoh's cup. And Joseph goes, yep, that's exactly what's going to happen. In three days, you're going to get everything that you had and everything's going to be okay. Uh, Wonderful news for all involved. And so that leads uh, in verse 14 for Joseph to put himself out there a little bit more. Verse 14, only remember me, as he's talking to this brother, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I've done nothing that they should put me in this pit. Okay, a couple things to note here. Joseph's confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, he may not have terms for this like we do, but his confidence in the work of the Holy Spirit to rightly interpret that dream is profound. He's like, hey man, this is what it means. Take it to the bank. I'm not, I'm not even, we don't even, we don't even have to worry if this interpretation is true because it, because it is. But let me talk a little bit about my life. Uh, and then you see this plea for mercy. He's like, could, could you do me a favor And could you help me? Maybe a little bit of reciprocity here. Like, could you just mention to to Pharaoh when you get out of here that I'm the one that helped because I used to kind of have a better job than this and I don't want to be here. And uh, man, he's just getting viscerally emotional here. He's remembering his suffering. He's getting into his story. He has to be remembering this significant abuse that he experienced And and the reason why we know this is the word pit, the word that he describes as the jail is the same word that of the hole that his brothers threw him into some time ago. And so it, it, it has to literally and figuratively be the bottom of his life right now as he's thinking about what his brothers did to him, what Potiphar's wife conspired against him. And now He's where he is. And, and he has to be thinking, and I imagine if you were and I, you and I were in the same place, we'd be thinking the same thing. I should be at home with my family. I should be with my dad who I love. I should be with my brother. I should be at home. Things should not be this way, but they are. And I'm here trapped in a dungeon, in a pit. What in the world is happening? So a little bit of reciprocity, please, brother, so that I could at least get out of this pit and back to my old job, which was still a lot worse than what I had before, before I was forced into this place. And then in verse 16, we see another, we see the, the, uh, the uh, cupbearer favorably interpreting or having his dream interpreted. And so now the baker wants to do the same thing as well. So we read verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the baskets on my head And Joseph answered and said, here's the interpretation. The three baskets are three days and three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Wow. Okay. 
that didn't go the way of his friend. What's so interesting about Joseph's, Joseph's interpretation to the chief baker is he tells him the truth. Again, he, he steps into risk to interpret. This is absolutely his chance to be political and go, oh yeah, well, well here's what, you know, all right, here's what this means for you too. And maybe we can work a deal and get me out of here. Could have leveraged everything he had having heard this more favorable uh, interpretation. And yet he just goes, no, let me, let me tell you what this means. Uh, I'm not gonna be political. I'm not gonna work to make everybody like me. I'm gonna tell you the truth. In three days, you're gonna die, sorry. And he says that to somebody who actually has real power over him. This guy's an officer in Pharaoh's court. Joseph is an absolute nobody. And yet he didn't capitulate because he knew as a follower of God, he had to be a truth teller. And amidst suffering, he did good. Let's finish the passage before we talk about it. Verse 20, let's see what happens on the third day. When, Pharaoh, when it was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants, lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Lift up means to summon. They were summoned and everything happened the way Joseph said it would happen. Verse 23, so much of this story hinges on this verse. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He is forgotten. The cupbearer does not do what Joseph asked him to do in the interpretation of his dream. And the chapter is over. My question at the beginning of our time was this. What do we do when suffering gets worse? I think there are three things in the passage for us to see. The first thing is this. What do we do when suffering gets worse? Number one, we should not be surprised when suffering gets worse. What do I mean by this? It is very evident from the life of Joseph that God has chosen not to give him a charmed life. He did not get everything he ever wanted, far from it. Far, far, far from it. Uh, but what's interesting about the Bible is when you read into scriptures, you're actually gonna see this theme kind of in every direction. What do I mean by that? Take Bathsheba, for example, who's minding her business only one day to realize that she's lost her husband at war, that the king of Israel has uniquely leveraged his power to put her in a very uncomfortable situation. And she's gonna have a child with him and lose that child too. How about the same king, King David, running from his life, from his son Absalom, who wants to, imagine your child wanting to ruin your existence. I mean, we don't have time to talk about Job, my goodness, my goodness, or Jeremiah. I mean, constant, like, like I mean, decades and decades of their life, just running from God. Or take Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians, where he describes literally the affliction we experienced in Asia 
We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. It felt like the death sentence. You see, my friends, like this view of life of, as a utter pursuit of freedom and happiness, of, of your, like your ultimate pursuit of life is pursuing your freedom and your happiness on your terms is a completely modern concept of life. It is so, and, and here's the thing, you can say, we can say as Christians, we reject that, but it doesn't mean that we're not discipled by it because it's everywhere. The view that we get to, like, they, like how many times do you hear, they just, need to, they just need to find what they're looking for. That just whatever makes them happy. Like that is so in the water of our culture. You just, you, you get to do you and pursue whatever you want and your happiness on your terms. That is a utterly modern concept of life. Tim Keller helped me years ago to understand this in his book on suffering. And you think about just the evolution of how people thought. Pre-modern societies, that means prior to the enlightenment, what they generally believed was that God was transcendent. He was all knowing. And so when awful things happened, we didn't or could not know all the reasons that those things happened. We couldn't, but God was everything. Therefore, awful things meant that we experienced them, but it didn't mean that we knew all the answers to why they happened. And if you remember your history, the enlightenment about the 1700s introduced the idea of deism and deism still affirmed that God was real. But what enlightenment brought through deism was basically this idea that God has wound up a clock for us and then he's let it go. And it now ticks without him intimately involved in the details of life. And so what deism did is it replaced the older Christian idea that we exist for God's glory and it replaced it with a belief that God exists to nurture and sustain us as we become confident in the powers of, exhaust, of exhaustive uh, observation. And then all we've seen now in our iteration is, uh, is, 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 is this deism snowball. So what's the implication? The implication is this, people now believed and certainly believe today that we are not created to serve God for his benefit, but rather God has created the world for our benefit. And then you fast forward to 2023, where, where this story has evolved. Now, a, a ton of people throughout the world, especially in the West, believe that the natural material world is all there is. And so the meaning of life is to have freedom and to choose the life that makes you most happy, that makes you the happiest. The problem with this is that suffering is the great obstacle to this life. Suffering can, can have no meaning because it's a complete interruption to you being you and having all you want and everything going the way you want it to go. Suffering is literally and figuratively a cancer and has to be avoided at all costs. But here's the breakdown of this Western view. It can provide a compelling vision of freedom and personal fulfillment apart from God, but it doesn't give us any tools whatsoever when the worst things happen. And here's the problem with that. The worst things happen. That's the problem. 
You read Joseph's story, you read the Bible, you read history, you get to know people well enough, you get to know enough people and you turn on the news for five minutes and you realize that there are no promises that everything is ever going to go our way. And if you live long enough, you're going to realize that if you haven't already, that the bottom has fallen out or the bottom will fall out one day. And so we stare into this story going, what do we do when suffering gets worse? My encouragement is that we're not surprised by it because people around us continue to be surprised by suffering. This continues to be why secular and non-religious people are are completely unequipped for suffering and they have to smuggle in resources from other worldviews to make sense of their dense and hardened realities. It's why you will find people, find places in funerals when people lose life unexpectedly or at the end of, the life, in their end of life and there's nothing to say, you will hear people say, well, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're in a better place now. They're just in a better place now, which... Uh, of course we, of course we believe the sentiment of that as Christians. We believe that Jesus' Christ's resurrection for us is the beginning of that better place. Christianity introduced that worldview. But, but the question is, how can you, an otherwise secular or non-religious people, that, that no aspect of your life affirms the idea of the transcendent Yet when suffering happens, you go immediately to a vision of that kind of spiritual world. It's because people around us have no tools to understand depravity and brokenness and hardship. And Joseph's life and the two friends we had dinner with this week are just two more notches in this warped story of our broken world that the Bible gives us the clearest answers to. Thorns and thistles as a result of a brokenness with our creator, a curse that covers everything. A curse that covers everything. So what should we do when the suffering gets worse? We shouldn't be surprised by it because none of us should be surprised by suffering in a post-Genesis 3 world. Second thing we should do when suffering gets worse, we should continue to do good. Let's talk a little bit about Joseph's favor, right? Because it's so obvious that the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. And Shay mentioned last week, it's because he's handsome. May have had a little bit to do with it, you know? Why he had so much favor. But uh, that's not the reason that he had all the favor that he had. He didn't have all the favor to become one of the highest ranking people in Egypt because he was handsome. That's silly. Okay, that'd be like saying Tom Brady won all of those Super Bowls because he was handsome. I I don't even know where I'm going with that. I digress. (laughs) He didn't just have favor with the jailer or with Potiphar because he was good looking. He had favor because God was with him and he actually chose to do something with that. That, that dude had to have been so high energy, so likable, so hardworking and, ever, and so dependable and organized in every sphere of his life that he was just 
like people of power just said, I trust you. You know what we don't find in Joseph's life? Him sulking in the corner and wasting away in apathy because everything has gone horribly wrong for him. And by modern standards, this is exactly what's happened. Everything's gone wrong. And yet he's not in the corner in this perennial pity party. What is he doing? He's doing his absolute best to do his best. There is a reason for his favor. He's leading, he's serving, he's working at a high level. He's even in verse eight, stepping into his gifting, dream interpretation. What a risk to go to two people of power and go, hey, my God who is not your God is the one who uh, interprets all dreams has the answers and I'm going to claim his authority to tell you something that you may not like. He's stepping into his gifting, he's stepping into his authority and he's leading. He's doing his best and he speaks true words. He's not manipulating outcomes. Sure, he's asking for a reciprocal benefit, but he wasn't, polit- he wasn't politicking. He was going, this is what God says and I can live with whatever that means as he did. So what does it mean for us when suffering gets worse for us? Well, we have a choice. When suffering gets worse for us, are are we gonna live in ongoing angst and victimhood? Or are we gonna embody courage amidst hardship? What are we gonna choose when things get worse? Peter helps us. He says, 1 Peter 4, 19, he says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And we'll have a choice when the bottom falls out. You have a choice right now if you're in the hardest season of your life and people are watching how you respond. Last thing, when suffering gets worse, We're not shocked by it. We continue to do good in it. And then the third thing, when suffering gets worse, we look for hope in a God who cannot forget us. We look for hope in a God who cannot forget us. God will not waste suffering because God will not forget us. God will not forget you. And that doesn't mean you won't feel forgotten. Joseph feels forgotten. Of course he does. Amidst all of his positivity and his public usefulness, I just talked about this, the chief cupbearer did not remember him. He forgot him. Some of us resonate with this. We feel forgotten by God. In our hard suffering right now, we feel forgotten by God. And maybe you would say, man, I've tried to do well, but just feel forgotten by God. Joseph knows what it's like to be forgotten too. Maybe some encouragement for stuff that we can see. The first thing, God's favor is already ours in Christ Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, it's a favor for you to receive by faith. But if you are a follower of Christ, God's favor it's, is, already, is already ours. It's not earned by doing good things. So maybe to say it a different way, we don't do good to honor him as a payment for a favorable outcome. We already have 
all of the honor because of Christ. Don't fall for the karma trap. Don't, don't fall for the trap that says uh, that, that you doing good forces God to change your circumstances. That's not the gospel. You and I know too many good people who have lived well only to experience harder and harder things. God doesn't owe us good circumstances as a result of us doing good. Okay, but what we do know is that because of Christ, we have all the favor we could ever need and we are loved and we are forgiven and we are cherished by God. We can also remind ourselves, just like pre-modern societies did, that just because we don't know all the reasons why something bad is happening doesn't mean that those reasons don't exist. Just because you can't think of everything doesn't mean that you know everything. How this passage ends, yet the cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him, apart from God, is just miserable. What a sad story, man. What a really sad story. But that's not the Christian story. That's how the world works. The, the, the world sees hardship and goes, oh man, I'm sorry, maybe throws a few dollars at it. And then they move on in desperate hope that that story is not their story. But that is not the Christian story because what Joseph doesn't know is what we'll talk about next week, that the cupbearer two years later will remember Joseph and he'll begin the process of drawing him out into one of the most compelling redemption stories in all of the Bible. What we are about to read in the coming weeks, one of the most jaw-dropping stories in all of the Bible of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of grace, of provision, where God will continue to preserve the line of his people and ultimately give us Jesus. Ultimately give us Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, speaking of Jesus, the true and better Joseph, Jesus, the one who knows what it is to come and serve his brothers only to be rejected by them, who knew what it was like to be falsely accused, despised to have his own robe torn from him. Jesus who knows what it's like to sit in an infinitely deeper pit of abandonment and, and rejection while nobody knew what God was doing as he literally experienced God forsakenness on the cross as things appear as worse as possible. But you know who he was doing that for? He was doing it for us. When nobody saw, when everybody saw the cross and nobody anticipated the resurrection, he was doing it for us. He was doing it for you experiencing the darkest night of hell for you because he loves you. And because suffering in a moment of agony in a nightmare does not have the final words in our life, that is the Christian story. That the morning breaks right as the night seems darkest. Christianity gives us the most startling picture of the darkest nights turning into the brightest days. Parting encouragement for you. Don't be shocked by suffering. Don't be shocked by suffering. Let the life of Joseph, Joseph, ultimately the life of Jesus, allow us to throw ourselves on God when the hard things, when the hard seasons come, because the hard seasons will come for us. Secondly, do good and don't waste the hard season. It's important at times to recognize and identify when we have been wronged. 
Bible cares a great deal about justice and that's okay for you to acknowledge where you've been wronged. It's one thing to acknowledge it and to pursue justice. It's another thing to let what happened to you or what is happening you to be the thing that defines you for the rest of your life. Don't let your hardship ultimately define you. In the midst of your hardship, love and lead and serve and embody the gospel. And here's why. Because somebody who identifies, somebody that has more pain and someone that has more scars and someone whose heart was more pure and more loving and more giving than yours, his deeper scars and more pain has already lived his life for you and brought you into his life so much so that he says you are hidden with him. And so in the midst of your hardship, continue to do good. As one pastor said, remember there's about 10,000 things that God is doing in your life and you may be aware of like three or four of them. So just cultivate the muscle of trust in your life and the things that you don't see. And lastly, yeah, sure, we experience pain and suffering like everyone else. There's no doubt about it. Sure, terrible things happen to us. That's why God gives us the Psalms for us to pour our heart out to him in the midst of them. So in the midst of your hard situation or your future, pour your heart out to God. That's why the Psalms are there. But we can be buoyed to suffer well as Christians because this is God's promise to us. We will never suffer without hope. We will never suffer without hope. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Joseph and what we learn, how it points to Jesus and how we learn from the life of your son. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who are suffering, that they would pour their heart out to you, not only to you, but to their brothers and sisters around them that they would receive the community of care that the church provides, community of love and support, that burdens could be lifted, and that you would give us relief amidst sorrow. Thank you that you make us better. God, I, I know I'm, I'm not anything like I, I desire to be, but, but I do know I'm not who I, I used to be, and part of that is because you have helped me in suffering. And so would you help my brothers and sisters? Would you help us to see you? We ask your blessing in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.